Today I'm going to try to uh, tell four stories that come together to make one point. You probably have figured out the point by now because I've got graphics on the screen that say, No whining! So let's start in Jeremiah. Oh, you're going to see there is a running theme throughout Scripture about people whining and complaining where they shouldn't have any reason to do that. We're starting in Jeremiah chapter 1. This is what Jeremiah wrote. He said, it's at verse 4, The word of the Lord came to me. Sorry, let me put these up on the screen for you. There we go. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Isn't that great? God has come to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I've got news for you, buddy. Even before you were created, even before mom and dad even had that little sparkle in their eye, I knew all about you and I knew exactly who and what you were going to be. Isn't that great? And you know what, Jeremiah? Not only did I know about you, but I gave you a special job. I created you to do something. I created you to be exactly the person who was going to be the prophet. My voice to the nations. You're going to share this with everyone for me. Isn't that great? Now, how many of you think Jeremiah said, Yes! I am special, I am beloved of God, and He has got a job for me. Here's what Jeremiah said. God said, I created you special to do a job. Good news, here it is. And Jeremiah said, alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak, I'm too young. God says, this is, I've made you for this one thing. You were built for this. This is exactly the right thing for you, and I've got it all set up for you. And you're going to do it. And Jeremiah says, oh no, I can't do that. I can't possibly do that. That's too much work. It's too hard. I'm not right for it. I'm too young. God, I know you said you know me, but apparently you don't really know me. Maybe you have missed the fact, I'm just too young to do this. I can't do that. There was a time when that was a complaint I would be able to empathize with been a few years since I've been able to complain that I'm too young for anything. All right, we're going to leave Jeremiah alone for a little bit. Because honestly, he's a good kid. He's going to pick up the mantle. He's going to do okay. He's, he's all right. Let's talk about someone else. Let's go back in history just a bit. Let's talk about Gideon. Gideon was a guy, you read about him in the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 for Gideon's story. And uh, what's going on here in Judges 6, starting at verse 1, says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years it gave them into the hand of the Midianites. The Midianites were one of the enemy nations surrounding them. It says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. So they, they essentially... 
They were so overwhelmed by the force of the Midianites coming into their land that they hid. They had to hide in all the nooks and crannies because anytime they showed up in the open, the Midianites would come and just drive them out. They would take all their stuff. If you read through it, say every time there was a harvest, the Midianites would come and steal the harvest. Anytime they found livestock or grazing animals, the Midianites would come and steal those animals. So the Israelites were reduced to hiding. A couple of verses down, verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abirzite. You ever notice that some of these old countries and names are just impossible to pronounce in our current uh, culture? That's all right. If you hit names when you're reading the Bible, if you hit names that you just don't know what they are, it's okay just to, to read them differently in your head. Don't get stuck on the fact that you don't know how to pronounce a beer's right. Because it doesn't really matter to the story. What matters is that we know that this oak in Ophrah belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. How many of you know uh, what wheat is? I should have put pictures up. We're in kind of a rural, rural harvest. Oh, man. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're in kind of a rural harvest area, so we should all kind of have at least some idea what hay or grass looks like, right? We get the long stalk, and then there's the seeds up on the, the end. And so when they cut down the wheat, they'd have to get the seeds off because you don't want to eat the stem because it's really, it's not, it's not tasty. And it doesn't digest. It's gross, yeah. Um, but the seeds of wheat are what make all our bread and all this good stuff, so you have to get the seeds off. So what you would do to get the seeds off is you take a big handful of all these stalks of wheat and you thresh it. You smash the heads down on something, smash them as hard as you can, and get the, the seeds to break off those sticks. And you throw away the stick part, and then you take that and you throw it up in the air on a cloth or something, you and hopefully a friend, because if you're doing this by yourself, it's really hard. But you get someone to throw it up, and the wind takes away the, the shells off of the seeds, and you're left with nothing but the meat of the, the wheat, the wheat berries, as it were. And that's the stuff you can eat. But all of those are things that you need to do in a big way. If you're trying to do it in a small place, it takes forever because you have to do just a few little stalks at a time. And if you can't throw it up and let the wind take it, you end up like, have you ever tried to sort the seeds out of a bowl of popcorn? And you always miss those holes that are there and they get stuck in your teeth and they never go away. That's what happens. You get these little shells, these holes that are just, they, they, it makes eating impossible. So Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, wine presses back in Gideon's day were holes that got dug in the ground. And they would throw the grapes in and then they'd jump in and jump up and down on them and all of it would sit in the hole. So instead of threshing his wheat, up on a hilltop where the wind is going to carry that stuff away, he's hiding in a hole in the ground, threshing just a little bit of wheat. Which I think is hysterical, because what happens is this angel of the Lord is sitting there watching him do this, 
And then after watching for a while, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. Gideon, who's hiding in a hole in the ground, you mighty warrior. Sometimes God tries to tweak our pride just a little bit. Mighty warrior. Afraid to even stick your head out of the hole in the ground. But he's got a message for him. Says the Lord turned to him, turned to Gideon, and he said, Go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. Now, what is the strength that he has? He's he's hiding in a hole in the ground in the in the <laughs> That's the strength that he has. He's very good at hiding in a hole in the ground. God says, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So you think Gideon's going to be like, wait, I don't need to hide in a hole in the ground anymore. God is sending me to win this victory. Isn't that great? God has called me a mighty warrior, called me out of my hole in the ground and told me to go defeat the enemy. Is that what Gideon is going to say? No, because just like the rest of us, Gideon is a whiner. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But isn't that what God just said? Go in the strength that you have. Don't go in someone else's strength. Go in the strength that you have. But Gideon says, I'm, I'm just not strong enough. change scenes for a second because these guys we're going to go back just a little bit farther in history these guys really have someone that they can point to as their example their mentor in life for how you whine and complain to try to get out of the things god tells you to do (coughs) excuse me picture if you will a bush in the middle of the desert which is on fire but doesn't burn up And along comes an 80-year-old man leading a bunch of sheep through the desert. And he sees this bush on fire, which happens in the desert from time to time. And he's like, yeah, it's a bush that's burning up. And he watches it for a little bit and he starts thinking, hey, that bush isn't actually burning up. And he goes over to it and he sees that the bush is on fire but it's not burning up. And then something weird happens. The bush starts talking to him. Now, for most of us, if we've been alone in the desert for a long time and a bush starts talking to us, that's a problem. But in this case, it happens to be God speaking to Moses. And God says to Moses in Exodus 3, starting at verse 9, Hey, the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So Moses, now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. At which point Moses said, yes, Lord, I can't wait to save my people. Forty years before, Moses had tried to save his people. He didn't wait for God to ask him. He just said, hey, my people need to be saved. And he started a rebellion, which lasted all of about 12 seconds. He killed an Egyptian overseer who was beating an Israelite slave. And he ended up running away into exile, which is why 
40 years later, at 80 years old, Moses is hiding in the desert with some sheep. But now God has said, go. And so, of course, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What is with these people? Pharaoh is a, it's a word that means king, essentially. So it's the Egyptian king. Um, it was kind of a name, but it was mostly a title, and it was passed down from father to son to father to son to father to son to father to son, to father to son for generations of them. So all of these guys have the same problem. Here is the creator of the universe has just come to them and told them that he has built them to do a specific thing. And every one of them has said, oh, you must be mistaken. Because that's what's likely wrong here, right? God has somehow made a mistake in his creation process. And he has no idea what he's asking them to do, right? Now, Moses takes this to a whole new level. Moses, God really wants Moses to be the guy because he has built him to be the guy to rescue his people. Everything about Moses' life to this point has made him the perfect person for this job. And so God says to Moses, all right, look, don't worry. I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that it's I'm the one who sent you, okay? When you bring the people out of Egypt, you're going to come right back to this mountain and you're going to worship God here. How reassuring. God says, there's a sign. You you go rescue the people. You bring them back here. I'll be here waiting for you. And Moses said to God, "Um, uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, look, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? Uh, What am I going to tell them then? Because, you know, I, I don't really know you. You're just a strange voice in the desert. So God says to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Their history tells them that this God is amazing. He's powerful. He does all kinds of things. He delivers them from everything that has ever challenged them. Every time one of these three guys trusted in God, their life was better. And so for now, Moses must be like, oh, yes, This is the God who's behind me. I have nothing to fear. I'm going for it, right? No. (laughs) No, not at all. Instead, Moses says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, oh, the Lord did not appear to you? And so God, you could just see him, if he had hands, throwing them up in exasperation smacking his head and going, Moses, what do I got to do? All right, here, Moses, look. The Lord says to Moses, what is that in your hand? This, it's a staff, Moses replied. The Lord says, throw it on the ground. So Moses throws the staff on the ground and it turns into a snake and Moses runs away from it. Ah! What on earth is going on? And then the Lord says to him, okay, reach out your hand and pick it up by the tail. And Moses is like, whoa, you want me to do what? <laughs> but for some reason, this is not a problem for him. He's like, oh, okay, I'll pick up the snake that I just ran away from by the tail. Sure. 
Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and turns back into a staff in his hand. It's like, that's awesome. And God says, this is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And you know what? He doesn't stop here. He gives Moses two other miraculous signs that he can do. He says, like, take your hand, stick it inside your coat. Stick it inside your coat. And uh, once, it's, once it's in there, pull it out. And look, it's now, it's changed color. It's white. It's moldy. It's covered with leprosy. It's like a hand of death. Then put it back in your coat. Pull it out again. Look, you're healed. He says, all right, if that's not enough, if those two signs are not enough, then do this. Get a pitcher of water and pour some on the ground. Just get some water, pour it on the ground, and look, it turned into blood. I'm not Moses. This is not blood. But how awesome would that be? God has given Moses these three awesome, miraculous signs. Throw his staff on the ground, it turns into a snake. Pick it up, turns back into a staff. Sign number one, hand, diseased, healthy, diseased, healthy. Moses is like the sideshow we've all wanted to see. And then if that doesn't do it, pour a little water on the ground, see it turn into blood. Man, that's, people are going to listen to him. They are going to know that God is in control. Is there any reason for Moses to be worried? None at all, which is why Moses says immediately, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. I can't possibly do this. Public speaking bothers me. Man. Can you think of someone who God has given this many chances without just getting fed up with him and smacking him on the head? No whining. The Lord said to Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Isn't it me? Hello? What are you worried about? Now go. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. At which point Moses, so excited to be chosen by God, says, please send someone else. Oh, my goodness. Two whole chapters of the book of Exodus is Moses complaining and whining about why he's not going to do the thing that God created him to do. Now, God does agree to send someone else, but he sends Moses' brother Aaron and he sends him with Moses. He doesn't send him to replace Moses. He says, Moses, you're going. I built you for this. This is your job. If you really need a security blanket of your brother going with you to hold your hand and say that it's going to be okay, fine, I'm sending him, but you are the leader. You are the one who's rescuing the children of Israel. 
Quit your whining. This brings us back to Gideon. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon said. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. I'm hiding in a hole in the ground. But the Lord says to Gideon, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon does not find this reassuring. Gideon crawls out of his hole in the ground and says, look, if I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that you're really the one talking to me and this isn't just some guy wandering by. Please don't go away until I come back and bring an offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait for you to return. So Gideon goes off and he makes a sandwich. All right, I'm perhaps interpreting that in my own way. It says he makes some unleavened bread it's a little uh, mutton to bring as, and brings some broth and brings all these components together. Essentially, it sounds like a wonderful bowl of soup and a sandwich for lunch. But it's an offering to God. And he brings it out and he brings it to the, uh, this angel of God who is here speaking to him. And the angel of the Lord says, set it down over there. And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. And fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Isn't that reassuring? Oh, let me see if it's really you who's talking to me, God. Here, let me bring an offering to God and set it before you. The angel touches the rock. The rock catches on fire. Everything burns up, and the angel vanishes. Does Gideon at this point say, wow, God was here. I am ready to do what he asks. No, Gideon says, I'm going to die. I've seen God. And God has to send a voice down and say, Gideon, you're not going to die. Just go do what I asked you to do. So Gideon does what God requested. <clears throat> a couple of chapters later, we get to this. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped at the Valley of Jezreel. They have just invaded Israel. This is a destroying force. They're here to take out the rest of the Israelites and take this land back for themselves. But then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Aberzites to follow him, all of his tribesmen. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. These are all tribes of Israel, saying, come together, come together. We are going to be God's warriors against this invading force. And then Gideon says, because all these people have come together behind him, just like God said, God said, you are going to be my mighty warrior. You are going to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon said, so God, if you're going to save Israel by my hand the way you promised, look, um, I just need a little, a little more convincing. I'm going to put wool fleece down on the threshing floor. And then uh, in the morning, if there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I'll know that you've got my back, all right? So God does that. Gideon wakes up and he finds, look, the fleece is wet, but the ground is dry. That's impossible. And he's convinced, right? 
except that he's not. He says, um, so God, now that you've done that, please don't be angry, but uh, could we do it the other way? Maybe I just picked the wrong test. Maybe that one was too easy. Can we do it the other way? This time, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. You ever put a sponge on a piece of wet ground and see if the sponge stays dry? It doesn't. I've tried it. And that night, God did exactly what Gideon asked. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. And even so, even so, Gideon is now reassured. He's ready for the attack. He brings his forces and God says, send all these people home and send all those people home and send all those people home. And he gets down to an army, a massive army of 300 guys. And God says, I want you to arm those 300 guys with torches. And Gideon's like, God, I might need a little more convincing. And so God, God says, Gideon, I want you to grab a friend. and You're going to go for a little walk with me tonight. And in the middle of the night, he has them walk into the enemy's camp. And as they go through the enemy's camp, they hear enemy soldiers waking up and talking about these dreams they're having about Gideon and his army overwhelming them and them just being wiped out. And the conclusion of the enemy soldiers is that Gideon has been given their army by God and that Gideon is going to win. And so Gideon goes back and he finally, finally believes that God is going to do what he says. Just like Moses, once he had Aaron, he finally, finally believed that God was going to do what he said. Gideon finally was convinced that God was going to do what he said. Did God do what he said? God always does what he says. Exactly. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Oh, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. What are these coming out of your mouth? They're words, right? Don't know how to speak indeed. So Jeremiah says this to God. And then he says in Jeremiah 1.7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, tear down to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. How much convincing did Jeremiah need? Just this little bit. Jeremiah is awesome. Compared to Moses and his two chapters of whining, compared to Gideon and his, oh, just let me have one more test, God. Jeremiah is like, oh, I'm too young. I can't do what you created me to do. And God's like, you big baby here. Look, I'm putting words in your mouth. Look, wah! Jeremiah's like, yeah, okay, I guess that was kind of stupid. I'll do what you said. And there are times in his history when Jeremiah questions whether what God has him tell people matters. 
He's like, God, I went and I told them this, and they're not listening. And God's like, yeah, I told you they weren't going to listen. I just want you to share my message. But Jeremiah is wonderful. He is remarkably trusting for a human being. He actually believes that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. Because every time God says he's going to do something, God does it. Right? How about us? Now, I got, I got, I'm going to weave my story into this because I always feel like I need to tell my story. My wife and I came to Salvation Army officership backwards. We both have training through another seminary, a Southern Baptist seminary, and uh, we didn't necessarily feel like we needed to go to Salvation Army training school. Salvation Army officers training school is a two-year seminary program. You come out of it with some business knowledge about how to run a corps and a little bit of uh, biblical knowledge. They give you a, a AA in uh, ministry for completing your work at this two-year college. That and a nickel get you a cup of coffee. <clears throat> and I don't want to say that it's not useful training. It is if, if we hadn't already been through all of the same training before. But we had said, no, no, not, we're, we don't really need to do that Salvation Army training. And we had actually been hired from the outside. We were made officers, uh, lieutenants in San Francisco, and we had served in one form or another for nine years. And uh, when we first started, when we moved here from Minnesota, we came with a lot of debt. We came right when the housing bubble in Minnesota burst. And so there had been a hope, because we were carrying a certain amount of debt to start with, we had hoped what would happen is we would sell our house, pay off all of our debts, and then if they were going to send us to training school, we could go to the Salvation Army training school right away. And so that had been what we had said is, well, when our debt is paid, we'll go to training school. And we sold our house, and we ended up so far upside down on our house and some of the things that we needed to pay for as part of the move. We were $177,000 upside down. Oh, my gosh. Seeing that number, it was like having an anchor chain tied around my neck. How on earth is anyone ever going to pay off $177,000? So they said to us, oh, we'd like you to go to training school. And we said, oh, we can't do it. I'm sorry. We have too much debt. I'll tell you what, if God gets rid of our debt, we will go ahead and uh, go to training school. Don't ever put challenges in front of God, by the way. So for nine years... We were in San Francisco, moving from appointment to appointment, and we were perfectly happy. We were, we were just fine. We would go ahead and continue to be Salvation Army officers in that capacity forever, and that was all we, were, we needed to do. And, and uh, we started looking at ways to get out of uh, ever needing to go to training school. And then this magic day came that we never thought was going to come after nine years, especially after nine years, because we certainly didn't get paid much. But... Through one thing and another, we had managed to scrimp and save and pay off here and be forgiven debt there. And we got to this point that we could see the next paycheck, the next paycheck we get, we pay off our debt. Isn't that great? The very next paycheck we get, we can pay off our debt. 
And we said, what are we going to do when we pay off our debt? What did we say we were going to do when we paid off our debt? Well, we said we'd go to training school if God paid off our debt. But that isn't what we thought. Instead, what we thought is let's take a cruise to Hawaii. What a great idea. God had different ideas. Three days before that paycheck came in, I got a call from my divisional commander. He said, you know what? It's great uh, that you guys have been serving here for uh, a decade now, but um, we, don't, we don't actually have a place for uh, you right now. So you need to make a decision about whether you're going to apply to go to training school or whether you're done being officers in the Salvation Army. I was like, wait a minute. That's not the deal. The deal with me was I just kept doing this for 10 years and then, and then you just, we just keep going. And then there's this little voice in the back of my head. It's God. He's saying, do you remember you said if I paid off your debt, you'd go to training school? I'm like, oh. No, God, I thought you would forget that. Apparently, God didn't forget that. Oh, surely God didn't really want us to go. Well, yes, apparently he did. So we did. We reset parts of our lives. And we followed what God asked us to do. And you know what? It turned out better. Apparently, doing the things that God asks you to do is the way to go. Now, do you want to know a better way to deal with God's requests than the way I did or the way that Moses did or Gideon did or Jeremiah did? By the way, I have no idea how long I've been talking. So if this is way too long, just raise a hand and let me know that I need to shut up. I've got one more story I want to tell you. All right. It's a short one. It's an important one, though. This is someone who handled life much better than any of the people you've heard about so far. Matthew twenty six thirty six. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. Now Jesus has been preaching for about three and a half years. He's been traveling around the countryside. He has led his apostles, his disciples, as best he can. And he has... He's kind of reached this point this last week that he has been here, this Passover week he's been in Jerusalem. He has taught everything he's needed to teach. He has preached everything he needed to preach. He has reached the people he needed to reach. Everything is very, very much coming to a head. And he's just had dinner with his his followers. What's going to become known as the Last Supper And he's bringing them out to this garden to pray in the middle of the night. And he says, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then going a little farther, he falls on the ground with his face to the ground and prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus is not excited about what's going to happen. Jesus does not want to be beaten. He does not want to be whipped. He does not want to be crucified. 
He is every bit as excited about dying as you or I are, which is to say, not at all. In fact, more than that, Luke, the physician, and all four gospel writers write about this moment, and they say how Jesus says this prayer repeatedly, repeatedly. And Luke says, Jesus actually prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. They all agree on exactly how he approaches it. It says an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. But then Luke goes on and says, being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was blood falling to the ground. There's actually a symptom of stress when you are going to do something that is so stressful that little capillaries actually burst in your forehead and blood will roll down like sweat. It'll pool up in the corners of your eyes like tears. Jesus did not want this. But he wasn't going to fight it. If God says this is the way things are, Jesus is like, I'm with you. This is not complaining. This is not whining. This is simple acceptance. Not my will, but yours. Oh God, please, no. But not my will, but yours. And when it came right down to it, and he had to make the decision, is he doing what he wants or what God wants? When the soldiers came in to arrest him, it says Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Luke assures us that Jesus healed Malchus's ear, by the way. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shouldn't I do the things that God asked me to do? How different would Moses' story be if instead of complaining for two chapters, when God showed up and said, I need you to go to Egypt to rescue people, Moses just said, yes, Lord. Did his whining and complaining change anything? How much easier on Gideon would it have been if he had just trusted in God rather than forcing him through all these convoluted tests? Jeremiah is not a bad example because we've all probably already complained about the places God tries to send us. God said to Jeremiah, look, here's my words in your mouth. Go share them. Jeremiah said, yes, Lord. Which model are you going to follow when God calls? It's important for you to think about because... What we've seen over the last few weeks is that God really does care for each and every one of us right where we are at, right who we are, right? And God calls to each and every one of us in so many different ways. And you have to decide, am I going to answer the call or am I going to reject it? Are you going to follow God's instructions or are you going to dispute them as if you have some secret knowledge about your life that God is not privy to? The creator of the cosmos knows everything about you. 
Just like he told Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb before I formed you. Wait a minute, I said that wrong. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were created. I built you for this. And this is where you go from here. So you have to decide, am I going to trust God? Or am I going to tell God that he's wrong? And just how far do you think it gets you to tell the person who made you that they're wrong about the way you work? How many of you think you understand the way you work better than God does? I'm out of words. I'm out of words. I want to have some big dramatic altar call, but I don't have one in my head. I think this is a choice everyone needs to make privately. When God calls you to do something today... Because God calls us all to do stuff every day. If you pay attention, you'll see every choice, every decision you make is, am I going my way or am I going God's way? If God calls you to do something, what are you going to do? If you want to come pray, come pray. If you want to stay in your seat and pray, stay in your seat and pray. If you want to stay in your seat and belligerently say, God, I'm just going to do things my way and hopefully it works out. You know what? Do that. See how that goes for you. I find listening to the person who built me to be the smartest choice that I ever make. I wish I did it more often. I'm going to play a song to close us out. You are welcome to pray or play or sing through it as you see fit.